So this year we've been doing this series called The Rhythms of Joy, where we focused on all of the ways that God used rhythms, namely especially celebrations, to teach people how to be happy. And it's really hard. Being happy is not easy. Having joy continually feels impossible. But we memorized a couple of verses early, earlier on this year, which is, were only seven words. So it wasn't a big thing we were trying to do, but we'll see how, how we do, right? So the, First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Be joyful always, right? And Romans 12, 12a says, be joyful in hope. So it, there's really like two words that overlap twice, so it's, it's, it's more like five words. But um, the, the idea here is not to memorize a huge swath of biblical content, but to memorize some really key verses that order in our minds and hearts some core truths. And that is that God commands us to be joyful always, right? And that sounds difficult, especially to modern ears, because we think of joy as an emotion, kind of like we think of love as an emotion, and we're like, how can you possibly have an emotion? All the time, emotions aren't that reliable. They kind of come and go. But if you've, if you've been here for several months, and you were here when we did the, um, the Substance series, we talked about how many of the things that we now in America in English call emotions, the rest of humanity has forever called virtues. So when, back, if you go back to the 1700s, people were a lot more careful in how they used the English language. So, for example, if you felt like you were in love with somebody, and you're like, I love them, they would talk about that being your affections. My affections are very high for this person. They wouldn't use the word love for that in most cases because it would confuse the virtue with the attendant affections that virtue brings, right? Because you being in love with somebody doesn't mean that you are always acting in their true good which is what love means, right? And so most of those things aren't just emotions, they're virtues, they're strengths, right? In fact, one of the key verses we talked about in relationship to joy is there's this place where the Israelites, things are going really badly for them, and they're about to like sort of cave into gloom. And Nehemiah stands up and he says, listen, this is, and it was actually during one of these big festivals. He said, this is a, the Lord's festival day, which means it is inappropriate to mourn and fast and cry. God set aside this day to be happy. And so don't get upset that God hates you or that he's like, you should be mourning and sad. He told you to be happy today. If you want him to be happy with you, do what he tells you and go out and get something to eat and drink and open your house to some friends and eat and laugh and have fun and play games and make jokes and do it all before the Lord, that is, with your heart being thankful towards him when you do all of it, because that is what he demands of you. And the reason is, is because life is very hard. It's very hard. It's full of difficulties and miseries and betrayals, and happiness is not enough. It's way too flimsy a thing if it's just a flitting emotion. You need meaning. You need something that means more than your miseries. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme. But you, you need something that is deeper than your deepest misery. It has to mean more to you than your deepest misery. So, because remember, Romans 12, 12 says, Be joyful in hope. The very next line is, comma, patient in affliction. So he believes both of those can happen at the same time that you can be enduring your afflictions and being joyful in your hope. Namely, your hope in the gospel and your hope in Christ and in all of the different meanings and meaning that come from all that Jesus is and everything that he does. 
right? Now, the, the problem with that is, is that if God demands a certain thing from us that we be joyful, and, and he tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and if we say, but I, the problem is, I don't have much of that virtue. Like, I can have faith that I should, I should believe in that, but I don't have a big, long track record of faithfulness for that thing to be formed in me, right? I mean, you don't have a ton of control. You've got a lot more—we have a lot more than we think, but you don't have a ton of control exactly the way you feel right now. But you have a lot of control in how you're going to feel in five years right now. Because you're going to make yourself into a certain kind of person that is nearly determined to feel a certain kind of way. And you get a lot of control over what you think about and who you become friends with and how you orient yourself and who you think gives freely to you and takes from you and all that. And that will determine a lot about whether or not you have the virtue of joy, right? And so the problem is, is that if we don't have that, how do you get that? And so God uses the rhythms of joy. He's like, I'll teach you. Let's have a big week-long party. I mean, it's literally what he does. For example, um, we often talk about Pentecost in the Christian church. The word Pentecost means 50th or the 50th day, because after Passover, there's seven weeks, seven times. There's, there's seven days, seven times, seven weeks. That's 49 days. The 50th day is the 50th, get it? And that's Pentecost. And the, the festival of Pentecost usually only comes up in modern language when we talk about, like in the church, we'll talk about sometimes Pentecostals. These are people who apparently really like Pentecost because they're really into partying. That's not really it. No, so in the, we usually think of Pentecost in relationship to Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the launching of the church and the transformation of how of people relating to God. That God is not just with us providentially or in, coming in and out of certain moments with us. But Jesus promised in John 14 that when he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit would be with us and in us, what Christians call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That through faith in Christ, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is with us, and the Holy Spirit is empowering us to be his witnesses in the world, to grow in righteousness and in real godliness, and to become his really through faith. Now, I've said many times, and I hear Christians say a lot of times, you know, in the first Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, and they taught it to say something. And I, I know I've said that a bunch of times. So it was like the 1,500th Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. That was not the first Pentecost. Pentecost is a celebration that God gave the Israelite people in the covenant made at Mount Sinai more than a thousand years before Jesus. Now, if you go to uh, Orthodox or, or conservative Jewish synagogue today to celebrate Shavuot, the festival of weeks, um, they will celebrate it as the time of the giving of the Torah, or the, the Bible, essentially, right? And that is that it was 50 days between Passover in Egypt, them coming across the Red Sea, wandering through the desert, and making it to Mount Sinai, where the law came. Okay, that's pure tradition. There's not a word of that in the Bible, right? Listen, I like the Bible, and if there was any way to biblically tie the Bible to Pentecost, I would do it. Okay? It's a little uncomfortable to be like, 
a church that was planted as a fundamentalist, teetotaling Baptist church to be talking about the celebration where the most direct command is to buy meat, wine, and other fermented drinks and to have a party, okay? It's a little uncomfortable. And if I could tie it to the Bible, I would. But I can't. It's not in the Bible. In the Bible, the festival of weeks, or Shavuot, happens 50 days after Passover because the 50 days pa after Passover are, is the harvest of the grain crops in Israel, which is the majority of the main staple foods that they would eat over the course of the year. The fall festivals, so in gathering, which is what we'll celebrate in September, the big like you have to live outdoors for a week because the Israelites didn't have homes. That's going to be an interesting tent city for us. Just, you just wait. It's going to be a good time, okay? That's like olives and all the figs that come in and pomegranates and other late fall crops. And so basically what happened is you'd celebrate Passover. You'd go home just in time for the grain harvests. You'd harvest the barley for a couple of weeks. You'd harvest the wheat for a few weeks. And then about the time you were done with that was the festival of Pentecost, which is a harvest festival. That's all it is. It is a, it is a celebration that God has been gracious to give a harvest. Now you might be like, that, that's it, man. Like, that's one of the big three. Okay, listen. You live in a post-industrialized service economy, right? Like, how many—I mean, I just wonder how many people in this room have never taken, like, an animal from alive to dinner yourself? Okay, I did that yesterday. Right? It's, most people have never done that. Like, there, you ask kids in school, they don't know where eggs come from. They don't know they come out of chickens. Some of them don't even know they become chickens. Right? Like, they just—no idea. And so when you're a, live in a society in which you didn't grow most of your food, you just buy it, which is great. It's so great that specialization produces wealth and we can all trade with each other. I'm not against the economy. But if you would have lived 2,000 years ago and spent 75 or more percent of your time and worry and difficulty growing the food that would take you through the next year so you wouldn't starve to death, whether or not you had a good harvest was the question of the year. It was not whether or not your husband is making you happy enough, or whether or not, like, your kids were going to make the select soccer team on the red level rather than the white level. Like, that was, that was not your issue. Your issue was like, are locusts going to come and devour everything we're hoping to eat so that we fall into debt slavery? That was the question, okay? And so God said, here's, here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to do what basically every pagan group of people on every continent since human beings began did, which was this. Things go bad, which means the gods are probably really temperamental. The only thing that could possibly make them happy is if we engage in sacrifices way before we plant any plants, namely sacrifices of things that matter a lot to us like bulls and goats and our children. So in the land of Canaan, every year, Hundreds of children were burned alive as sacrifices to the fertility gods so that if you sacrificed your fertility to the fertility gods, maybe the gods would give you fertility in the year of growth so that you'd be richer than you were before, right? One less mouth to feed, more to feed the mouths with. Makes perfect religious sense, right? And God says in the Bible, don't you ever do that. If you ever do that, I will throw you out of the land. It will throw you up like vomit. And you will never have an inheritance before me, right? And so he says, this is what we're going to do. Instead of being barbarians, here's what we're going to do. You're just going to trust me that I've promised to love you and to give you what you need. And then 
you're just going to like go farm. And then I'm going to give you what you need. And then after you harvest all this that you need, here's what I absolutely demand of you. You take seven months of your income, you set aside 10% of it, and you all come together and have a huge week-long celebration of my generosity in joy with each other. That's in the Bible. I promise it's in the Bible. Okay, Leviticus 23. It's in some other places too. It's in the Bible. This is God's attitude. And he demands and threatens us with terrible things if we will not be happy in him with joy because of how he gives that meaning. Okay, and so therefore Pentecost— Pentecost is a harvest festival of joy. That's all it ever was. It's very simple. It is a harvest festival of joy. God is generous. God will give you everything you need if you trust him. And the only thing he wants from you is gratitude. And he wants you to treat other people like he's treated you. He wants you to love other people. He wants everybody to have a party together. That's why if you were a slave in Israel— on the week of Pentecost, you partied the same as the king. Everybody had food. Everybody got to eat meat that day. Everybody got to drink wine that day. Even if after that week was over, you weren't going to live like these other guys. Because God gave the harvest to the whole country, and he gave the party to the whole country. Joy, harvest, God gives us everything we need. And then Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, and he completely redefines the Passover. He is the breaker of slavery. He brings his people out into a new country. He gives them a future, right? He gives—he appears to his disciples and other people and gives many convincing proofs, the Bible says, that he was alive for 40 days, okay? So if you don't read the Bible carefully, you're like, well, he appeared to a couple of people. No, he appeared to a few thousand people resurrected from the dead over 40 days and gave many convincing proofs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there was one time where there were more than 500 people, just that one time present, to see the risen Christ. And then he says, on the day of his ascension, 40 days after his resurrection, he says, go into the city and don't go out telling anybody about me yet. Don't. You wait. You wait until power comes from heaven. And then you'll be my witnesses everywhere in the world. And then 10 days pass, and they're praying, and they're waiting, and they're wondering what is going on. And meanwhile, because God had commanded every Jew to come to Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, Jewish people from all over the world, from as far as Iraq, and Turkey, and Syria, and Libya, were all converging on Israel for this great celebration. Right? That the Jews had started to celebrate once they came back from exile. They didn't do it until God punished them. But when they came back from exile, they started celebrating the festivals. And so they came speaking all kinds. Many of them didn't even speak Hebrew anymore or Aramaic. But they came speaking Parthian and Elamite and all this. And right as they're coming in, on this day, the festival of harvest, the Holy Spirit comes and fills his people. There's only 120 of them at this time. And they can speak in other languages. And these people can understand the wonders of God. And so like these Galileans are speaking like a tribal Iraqi language that they've never even heard in their lives. I don't, I don't know if it was in a Galilean accent or not. And these people from like central Iraq who are Jewish of descent or have converted to Judaism or hear these people saying in their language, 
God has done amazing things. The Messiah has come. He has died for your sins. He's been raised from the dead. The era that you've been waiting for, for all of our people have been waiting for, for all of our lives, is happening right now. This is the moment God is redeeming his people. The words of the prophets are all coming true, and people are like, this is crazy. And so then Peter stands up, and he preaches the sermon. And 3,000 people believe and are baptized. What is that? What is that? 3,000 people believe the message of the word of God, believe in Christ, and then they come in. They're, they're harvested. Do you get it? In the very next page, Peter preaches in another situation. Another 2,000 people come to faith. So then there's 5,000. That's a big harvest. We started with 122 pages ago. And the whole book of Acts lays out harvest after harvest after harvest after harvest after harvest. Do you see the point? God took then now the second feast, the harvest feast, and completely redefined it. The Holy Spirit will come, and he will bring a harvest of joy. He will harvest you, he will bring about a harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a harvest of righteousness in you. Like, he'll bring about godliness. The minute you get harvested, you become a field for godliness. He grows another crop of godliness inside of you for your good, for his glory, and for the good of everybody around you. And he sends you as his faithful witnesses to everybody in, in your life and to all the nations to bring in a harvest of all the peoples. Do you understand? The coming of the Spirit started an era of harvest— that we're still in. And every time we see harvest, remember what it says in Luke 15? This, that's, that has the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And Jesus says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance than for 99 people that don't need to repent because they've already been harvested. There's more joy over the harvest of one person. Do you understand? What did God command the people to do when there was a harvest? Have a huge celebration. What did Jesus say about the harvesting of just one person who comes to him? There's a huge celebration in all of heaven. And in the end, God will bring in his harvest to eternity, and it's going to start with a marriage feast. A huge celebration. Right? And so this is what God is trying to teach us. The Spirit comes, and he brings a harvest of joy in us, and a harvest for himself among all people. And he does it through all kinds of different and interesting means. So as you listen to some testimonies and some scripture reading, and as we go to baptism, let this be a means by which God teaches us and builds in you the virtue of joy. And then come tonight and celebrate and feast together and laugh and hear and enjoy each other to grow in the virtue of joy. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. High Point Church, my name is Kent Rawhauser, and today we're celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. During the rest of the service, you're going to hear testimonies about people who have experienced the Holy Spirit. So in the, in the coming moments, you're going to hear me read uh, scripture from the book of Acts, and then we're going to hear the actual testimonies from, from different people as they apply to each of the scriptures. So before Jesus releases the Holy Spirit, that launches the ministry of the apostles, Jesus instructs them to wait. Acts 1, 3-5. After his suffering, he presented himself 
to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So listen to this story about someone who had to wait for the Holy Spirit's power to perform God's work. Good morning. My name is Tia Sierra, and I'm one of the pastors at Lighthouse Church. I'm also the principal of Lighthouse Christian School, and I've been asked to share my testimony with you today about the school. In 2001, the Holy Spirit gave me a vision of an army of children that I was to lead to build his kingdom here on earth. At the time, I had no children, I didn't work with children, and I wasn't sure if I liked children. Um, so I filed that vision away, and I waited. Then in 2004, my, my senior pastor at the time called a meeting of the leaders of the church to tell us that he wants to open a school. The congregation is asking for something new and better for their kids. Unfortunately, they have no way to pay for it. What do you think? Suddenly, that vision rose up within me, and I raised my hand, and I said, Pastor Steve, I think I'm supposed to lead this. So we immediately discovered that running a school is very expensive. Within a year, the church reserves were completely drained. And so again, the leader sat down to brainstorm. Isn't there a way for the government to pay for this? Pastor Steve asked. We agreed we would pray this way. For the next nine years, we prayed on our knees every week. In my case, I'd be on my face every week, knowing the vision that God had cast, but not knowing how to meet payroll every week. But God was faithful. We didn't shut our doors. And we knew that he who started a good work in us would surely complete it. In June of 2013, the state legislator passed the Choice Program, which is a way for low-income families to apply to a private school and have the state pay their tuition. They would only open the program to 25 schools the first two years, the schools with the most applications. We had two weeks to find these applicants and to beat out all the other schools in the state. I remember sitting in a prayer meeting, stressing and worrying, crying out to God, there's no way we're going to get in. But then his word and his vision, it all flooded my mind. And again, he said, I will bring my vision to pass. I surrendered and said, Lord, Holy Spirit, I stand on your word. As impossible as this seems, I say yes to your plan for me. I immediately received an email right in the, in the midst of the prayer meeting from the state of Wisconsin. Lighthouse Christian School is number 25 on the list of schools to receive vouchers. Within three short years, we had reached the absolute max of our building capacity. And in the fall of 2016, we began sharing space next door with Mount Olive Lutheran Church. I knew that our current space couldn't house a growing army of children. So we met again as leaders. Where do we go from here? 
Our building wasn't designed to be a school, and in fact, it was becoming cramped for the church as well. Do we dare allow for God to do the impossible and give us a new building? We can cover our expenses now, but a $3.8 million project? For some, it seemed too daunting, too risky, too impossible. But God and his big ideas. By faith, I said, let's do it. If the Holy Spirit prepared this in advance, we only need to step in and take it. By December, we had found a building and began negotiating a purchase price. By January of 2017, we launched our capital campaign to raise $1.5 million. As we met with our first potential donor, I prayed, Lord, if you're in this, give us $100,000 from this person. We walked out of that meeting with our first 100,000. By March, we had raised the 200,000 to start construction. 80,000 of it it coming from local churches such as yourselves. But we were still $300,000 short of what we needed to start construction by May 1st, the absolute latest we could start to get classrooms in by September. As the May 1st deadline approached, the Holy Spirit whispered, hold out your hands, I'm giving you what you need. And sure enough, a single donation of 300,000 was given on April 22nd last year. There have been extraordinary obstacles this last year that have caused delays, headaches, and moments of doubt. There were permits to pass, impossible paperwork to sort through, and a million details to contend with. But today, we have 183 students in a brand new beautiful building that is full of learning, joy, peace, and the presence of God. Our current project is still underway as we continue to remodel the gym and the sanctuary, and we still need about 300,000. But of one thing I'm sure, when God promises us something, we only need to wait and expect with open hands. We continue to wait and believe that we will see this army for Jesus rising up in Madison. Thank you. After the Spirit comes and fills the apostles with the Holy Spirit, the first gift they were given was the gift of languages. Acts 2, verse 1 to 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phyria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonder of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, 
They asked one another, what does this mean? So the Holy Spirit is still working in the same way today. In this testimony, you'll see how the Holy Spirit has enabled people to overcome the barriers of language. Good morning, my name is Mike, one of the staff here. In 2008, Estel and I and another team member from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association were sent to Tortula, British Virgin Islands, to hold day camps for children and youth. And during the week, they had scheduled me every evening to speak in a different church, and then on the weekend, to speak in Bishop Hall's church of about 1,200 Caribbean Islanders. It was a wonderful church, a wonderful opportunity. I don't know if you're familiar with all the different English languages. There are seven English languages that exist in this world, one of them being Caribbean language. And they just take it and just push it together and then animate it. And it doesn't really sound like this guy. It sounds more like this guy. It's a big bird that I think is for hunting. The eagle is the only bird that can see 11 and a half kilometers away. And the vision is very clear. Now the second eyelid, hallelujah, is to protect the eyes of the eagle. It's like the eagle is wearing a dark glass. Come on, somebody. Notice the similarities between he and I? <laughs> a few weeks before, Bishop Hall had asked me if I would preach on a certain topic that his church needed to deal with. And sometimes it's easier when the outside guy comes in and, and speaks a difficult word and the pastor then can, in effect, clean up the mess. And so that was my task that Sunday. Right before I got up to preach, a um, young girl that was with us leaned across to Estel and said, what kind of preacher is Mike? And she said, he's just conversational. And, and as I got up to preach, I remembered that Estel had prayed for me that morning, as she often does, and, and she had prayed not that my words would be clear, but that the audience would hear specifically what God had for them that day in a way that would take hold and would convict. As I picked up my Bible, opened it up, and began to speak, what came out of this white guy was that. Complete Caribbean English, complete with gestures, animation, tone, voice inflection, everything. Because I grew up in a Pentecostal setting, I understood what was happening and settled into it. My first look was to Estel, and her eyes were a size of quarters, and, and it seemed natural for the audience. When I had asked the pastor what the preaching time was, he said, we try not to go over in two hours, and I said, I think I can give you an hour. And an hour later, finished my sermon, still in full Caribbean, and there was a sweet response of confession and repentance and then an exuberant time of worship and praising God for what he had done. I finally sat down next to Bishop Paul and he said, I didn't think you knew our language. And I said, I don't. But my wife prayed that it would be clearly heard this morning and God accomplished that. Like the fact that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and had been empowered to speak in tongues there were still people within the crowd who were unconvinced and becoming hostile. So Peter stepped out in boldness and began to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verse 13 to 16. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. 
Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stepped out in boldness. In this testimony, you'll get to see someone step out in boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit today. Good morning, I'm Heidi Wiley, and I'm gonna share a little testimony about how the Holy Spirit produced boldness in me. So in 2015, my husband Nate and I were given the opportunity to move to the Netherlands, which is a country with about 1% Christians. Through the Holy Spirit living in us, we witnessed great spiritual warfare in this country. The most impactful experience we had was when we took our first visit to Amsterdam, the city known for sex and drugs. We lived one hour south of Amsterdam, so the second weekend after moving, we took the train to visit Amsterdam as tourists for the day. As soon as I stepped out of the train station, I felt it. The darkness overwhelmed me. I knew right away there was major spiritual warfare going on here. Our travel guidebook had recommended visiting the red light district as a must-see in Amsterdam, so we decided to check it out. We had absolutely no idea what to expect. We were so naive that we even turned to each other when we were looking for it, saying, are we gonna know when we're there? And if you've ever been there, yes, you will definitely know when you are there. Women are half-naked, standing behind glass windows, waiting for customers, live sex shows, sex shops, and an overwhelming smell of marijuana are all things you cannot miss. I immediately felt my heart breaking, and I was in shock. I stopped in the middle of the street, grabbed my husband in tears, and started praying. We left to continue our tour of Amsterdam shortly after. I couldn't quite shake my experience in the red light district. I felt off the rest of the day, and I could not sleep for a few nights. The Holy Spirit kept pushing me to go back, but I never wanted to go back there again. So I ignored his voice. But after a few days of this, I finally gave in and said, fine, Lord, what do you want me to do? After a quick Google, Google search, I found an organization through YWAM called The Lighthouse. They do outreaches to the women working in the windows and to the men on the streets. They provide resources to the men and women to help them out of the world of prostitution. After prayer, lots of pushing from the Holy Spirit, filling out an extensive application, and meeting with the leader of The Lighthouse, I began volunteering for, with the outreach team on Friday nights. I have many stories I could share with you about those Friday nights, but in summary, I have never seen the Holy Spirit so clearly, and I've never seen the power of prayer work so quickly. So during the outreach, two of us would go out to visit with the women in the windows, and the rest of us would stay back to pray. When everyone gathered, we would have a debriefing after the outreaches, and we discovered almost every time that whatever was prayed was exactly what happened during the outreach even down to fine details. When I was the one visiting the women in the windows, my human mind would always get in the way. I'd feel really nervous, and I'd rather be back in my comfort zone with the prayer team. But as soon as I started talking to one of the women and stepped into her room, the Holy Spirit provided boldness and completely took over. I sat on this bed with a half-naked woman surrounded by sex toys. Yet the only thing I saw was a woman made in the image of God. The only thing I felt was how strongly the Holy Spirit was protecting me. 
When we left, I could re barely remember what I said or what I prayed, and I left every outreach thinking, wow, God, what just happened? My husband had similar experiences with the outreaches to the men on the streets. One time he found himself sharing the gospel to a man in front of the door to a live sex show. He knew that was not him, that was 100% the Holy Spirit making him bold to do so. And after their conversation, the man decided to leave rather than attend the sex show. Because of my experience serving in the red light district, I've become more in tune with the Holy Spirit. I didn't feel him that strongly when I was walking around in my comfortable world, but I certainly did when I entered the darkness and stepped out of my comfort zone. Now I am certain when I hear his voice pushing me to be bold. It doesn't have to be something big like sharing the gospel in the red light district because he pushes me to be bold with my family, my friends, and even a stranger. God says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord our God will go with us wherever we go. So be bold, my friends, with help from the Holy Spirit. This world needs us to reach the darkest corners to the corners of our neighborhoods. God will be with us wherever we go. Thank you. In the sermon that Peter boldly gives, he talks about a book in the Old Testament. That book was the book of Joel. Joel speaks of the promises God made of what will happen to those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Sometimes the Spirit works in dreams. In this testimony, you're going to see someone who had a dream, and that dream caused him to come to salvation in Christ. Good morning, High Point. Uh, my name is Matt Garcia, and I have been coming to High Point here consistently for a little over a year now. Uh, prior to uh, coming to Christ, I, I had no foundation uh, whatsoever, and neither did my family, unfortunately. So. Uh, it was very weak, and I often wondered about God. Then uh, about a year ago, I had a dream that would change my life forever. In my dream, I was lying on my back, couldn't see anything. I was facing the ceiling, and all I could hear was the strange whispers around me. Um, it was so intense that it just, I was just filled with fear and I didn't know what to do. I was just frozen, paralyzed, and uh, I was just, I was extremely afraid. So out of uh, desperation, I was uh, able to uh, get some words out and I was able to free my left hand up and I just reached to the sky and I, I said, Jesus Christ, if you're my Lord and Savior, please help me. And then the whispers slowly started to fade away. It was really weird. I was no longer saturated in fear. It's almost like a calming presence just came over me and just, and I was, I was okay. Then a soft hand reached out and grasped mine. I was thinking two things. One, it's a heck of a moisturizer you got there. That's the softest hand I've ever felt. Uh, but two, uh, I knew as Jesus was reaching out to me and the Holy Spirit was with me and everything was okay. Then he gently placed my hand back down to the side, my side and I woke up. 
I've had a lot of dreams in my life, and I've never had a dream like that so so real. Um, you know, such a touch could only be explained by the Holy Spirit and Christ wanting me me uh, to learn more and to, to build a relationship with Him. So after that, I knew I had to learn more about it, and uh, I filled out a connection card here at High Point Church, and I. I got connected with Pastor Vince, a really good friend of mine now, and um, I've been learning more about Christ every day, and I'm beginning my new life walking with Christ. So I know now that I'm forgiven, and that I'm loved, and that I'm never alone, and that hole that used to be in my heart has been filled. The Christian walk of life is so much different than what I knew growing up, and uh, but it's really it's amazing to know how good it feels to be loved by God and to have had an experience like that that'll change my life forever. So I'm forever thankful in everything that he's doing in, in my life and in the lives around me. And um, I'm, just, I'm just so blessed to be here to share this story with you guys. So thank you for listening and it's truly changed my life. Thank you. And finally, the Holy Spirit always brings in a harvest. As you'll see in the end of Peter's sermon, 3,000 came to know Christ. Acts 2, 37 to 41. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. For those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So listen to this story and see how the Holy Spirit is still bringing in his harvest today. Hello, High Point. This is John Voss. Uh, my wife, Chris, and I are your missionaries to the Scandinavian country of Sweden. Uh, and uh, we've been here for over 30 years, and uh, you are our, one of our, our, our original sending church, and uh, great supporters all during that time. Um, just a little bit about Sweden. It's a modern industrial country of 10 million people, twice as many people as either Norway or, or Finland. Very secular form of government is a constitutional monarchy, pretty much like England, um, but very, very socialistic. Let me tell you about uh, Torbjorn, and uh, we call him Tobe uh, for short, as a nickname. Uh, he, he had some Christians in his family growing up, but everything wasn't just really uh, stable in his uh, upbringing. And he had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions and a lot of objections about Christianity. But we had a um, retreat for our, our youth, and uh, he came and uh, the, the subject was apologetics. Well, this was something very new to, to Torbjörn. He had heard and experienced uh, that uh, everything was about faith, but never, no one ever explained to him that there, there are some legitimate reasons for faith. And by the end of the weekend, he became so convinced that Christianity was true that he gave his life to Jesus Christ. We, we took that youth group um, later uh, on a missions uh, trip to uh, the country of Latvia, and what we were doing is uh, we, were, we were putting together um, uh, a, a program for other young people. And on this program, which consisted of uh, songs, personal testimonies, 
drama, mime, and a, a pray with me gospel presentation. And it's COVID that we asked to do the gospel presentations. And several um, college students in Latvia came to know Jesus as their perfect savior. And boy, it just put his confidence in his faith through, through the roof. He still is a strong believer today. He's married, uh, he has two children, he's active in the church, and he's going on following the Lord. It's always the same. Um, the Holy Spirit draws them, and, and uh, he is pleased to use a, a bunch of uh, nincompoops like we are to do it. It's just amazing. Enu, Yeri, Maria, Torbjörn, Nana, Karlin, Dovi, Denea, Yamshi, Felix, Shakila, Leila. We pray, the Holy Spirit works, we share truth, we love on these people, and the Holy Spirit brings them to faith.